it's Ella and Flora. Welcome. In this podcast, Brain and Butter, we want to break down psychological and neuroscientific ideas into tangible language and break it down for everybody to understand. Today, we invited an expert to learn about psychedelic drugs and their effects on the brain. The effects of psychedelic drugs are incredibly interesting and intriguing. They can make you hallucinate and often alter your state of consciousness. The classical psychedelics are mescaline, LSD, psilocybin and DMT. But in common language, the term psychedelic drugs may also include cannabis or MDMA. And in this episode, we would like to find out if and how psychedelic drugs rewire our brain, if they can be used to improve our mental health and more. And today we have Juman McCulloch with us. Juman, you completed your education in pharmacology and neuroscience at the University of Glasgow. And now you also do your PhD about the effects of psychedelic drugs on the brain. And more specifically, you look at the connection between neuropharmacology and subjective experience and how to use these relations to improve quality of life. So we are very thrilled to have you here today. Thank yeah, you for joining us. Happy to be here. And as the first question, I would be very interested to know why you chose this path, like this research. Sure. Okay. There's, I mean, there's a couple of things that all sort of came together. Uh, with this. So my undergraduate was uh, was in drug discovery and development and, and neuroscience, but originally it was in some other sort of biology, and then I sort of gradually made my way uh, towards towards that side of things. I think developing new medicines is a a thing that could has the potential to help a lot of people. I sort of had like a hero of, you know, Alexander Fleming who discovered penicillin. I remember hearing about him and thinking like, you know, if I was like a really good doctor, I could maybe save like a hundred people or something or a thousand people. But then if you develop penicillin, right, you like alter the course of history. And like maybe that seems that was like the egotistical thinkings of a 16 year old. But then also that sort of carried over into thinking that, yeah, developing some kind of drug or something like this, it just feels like a very tangible scientific discovery to have created a drug. And this is before I realized that the entire drug discovery process takes like 20 plus years and a billion dollars to actually do the whole thing. But nonetheless, that seemed like a pretty interesting and, and tangible goal. And then on top of that, I sort of have this, I've always had an interest in sort of altered states of consciousness, be it like lucid dreaming or reading. Like when I was young, I would read these Eruid reports. I don't know if you know them, like It's like a big database of trip reports, effectively, where people say, I, I took this drug and this is what happened. So when I was young, I used to read all of those as well. And then it sort of like aligned over time that at one point it was just like, oh, you can make drugs and you can make, you can specialize in drugs that affect the, the mind, which is what I was particularly interested in. And yeah, and then it turns out that was an option. So it was an accident that we discovered like the effects of psychedelics, but What are they exactly on the brain? What happens in the brain? Yeah, exactly is a tough word. So we're, we're still pretty primordial uh, <clears throat> in terms of that. So I think generally the problem is every time someone publishes something in neuroscience and it makes the headlines, it's always something called something like, we now know how LSD works in the brain or something like this. But it, like this is wrong for a number of reasons. And the first one is that sort of, Imaging brain function with fMRI, which is the most commonly used metric these days, has really only been around for like 30-ish years, maybe a little longer. So we really still don't totally know what we're doing with it. There are some things that are pretty robust uh, using fMRI that's not like discredit the entire field. But like it's, it's new, it's developing. All fMRI researchers acknowledge that this is a new and developing field. So, so one, the tools we have are in like are still being developed and it's awesome and there's some really smart people doing some really good development there. But the tool is not great yet for things like, for you know, for structural imaging, it's great. 
but for functional imaging, so for looking at like the structure of the brain, we're pretty good at that. But for looking at like brain function, we're really just working out what's going on. We're making all these interesting new analyses for that. So one, neuroimaging is at this stage where it's getting better. And honestly, the best thing we can do at the moment is to develop our tools. So that's that's that for the first thing. Like we're still kind of doing cave paintings yeah. and like one day we'll make sculptures, but not yet. And, and, and the second thing is that within that psychedelic neuroimaging has been around for now 10 years. And there's been, I think, like 53 or so papers published in the space. And we, we published this big review last year with all of the different PIs from all of the different groups. That's all the different like lead investigators uh, from each of the groups. And we all agreed, like, we're at a very early stage. We're all doing exploratory work in lots of different directions. There's some really cool stuff coming out. There's some findings that seem to be consistent across sites. But then we're not sure whether those effects are, like, specific to psychedelics right so you we all see this one sort of effect where you sort of like increase connectivity all over the brain like all the bits of the brain are talking to each other more than they were like when they give you the placebo or something but then we have this issue where we don't know whether that's like the psychedelic effects per se or whether that's like just because the psychedelics make you more awake and like in the other step in the other state you're kind of sleepier because you haven't had a psychedelic drug so you're not going to be as awake so yeah, with all of those caveats, we have started to develop some understandings of how these work in the brain. And this one of sort of generally increased connectivity uh, does seem to be coming up over and over again uh, at multiple sites. And then one of the other interesting things, so maybe yeah, 15, 20 years ago, someone discovered that, so originally, okay, I'll backtrack a little more. Originally, we sort of, we looked at the brain as a whole and it has this sort of anatomical structure where you can say, okay, there's this frontal lobe and then there's this parietal lobe in the middle, temporal lobe on the side, right? Occipital lobe on the back. And then they started to try and break that down further and further into sort of specific brain areas. So we had like the, some part of the frontal cortex above the eye, it's called the orbitofrontal cortex. And we have the amygdala, which is like a, a deeper structure. And we sort of started to work out what each of those brain regions does. So that was the original sort of like paradigm where we looked at the brain. But then, yeah, using fMRI a couple of years, well, 20-ish years ago, someone discovered that it's, it's not so much the activity in those regions that's important for brain function, but it, it happens that there's sort of sets of regions that aren't near each other at all that sort of fire together and function as what we call now brain networks. And so it's less about the region themselves and more about the interaction between regions. And of course, that increases the complexity massively, right? Yep. Um, so you have like, instead of per region, you have per region by region. So we discovered that there's these brain networks. And then one thing that happens under psychedelics is that the network structure of the brain tends to sort of flatten. And instead of having like strong connection within the networks and then not so much connection between the networks, you end up with less connection within the networks and then more connection between the networks. So that seems to be consistent across sites. But again, we're not sure if that's a psychedelic thing or if that's some other confounding factor. It could be like psychedelic effects on, on wakefulness. It could be psychedelic effects on direct effects on like the, the veins and arteries uh, in your brain that cause this, cause this to be a thing. It could be motion because people on psychedelics seem to move a lot more in the scanner and that's a big problem with MRI. So yeah, not to be disheartened, I wish I could say like, we know that it does this and it changes this network and it does that and it increases this other like entropy of the brain or something like this, but we're, we're kind of not there yet. 
unfortunately. <laughs> and we probably also don't know yet if there's any difference between different psychedelics and how they act in the brain, right? It's well, yes. I mean, so in your in your classification of psychedelics earlier, you mentioned like LSD, psilocybin, DMT. So th those are all pretty similar. And there's been some really nice work just with subjective experience where people try and guess whether they've been given psilocybin or LSD and people at the peak effects really can't guess. One thing that is different is the duration. And this might end up being really clinically relevant. It might be that a 12-hour trip is going to be much more therapeutic than a six-hour trip versus like a 20-minute trip, which is possible with some drugs. So one of the, I would say that the biggest and most important difference between the drugs is the duration. With that said, it would be somewhat surprising if they were tote, if there was no difference at all between them. But I, I just think because like subjective response is really difficult as well uh, to, to measure. People are like, oh yeah, I think this is LSD. I think this is psilocybin. Um, but it, it might still be the case that the drugs are a bit different. There is reason that they could be different. They have slightly different receptor binding profiles. So they, some of them bind to dopamine receptors. Some of them you know, bind to histamine receptors, other things like this. So they could be different. There's a lot of subjective reports out there of people who are like, yeah, definitely. I can tell 2CB from 2CI and I can tell 25N-bomb from Bromo Dragonfly. Like there's so many designer drugs out there. Maybe they can. Uh, I, I don't I don't know, but I, there's no science. Uh, unfortunately, there's no science uh, to back that up as yet. But the duration thing is, is definitely real. But then would it be that maybe health effects wise, I think there are way more stigma around synthetic drugs than organic drugs in mm. a way. So I think maybe if you ask someone like, would you take mushrooms or would you take LSD? Maybe they would go for the mushroom one because it's like, oh, it's like organic. It's yeah. like gross and stuff. But is one more harmful than the other one or, or there is no difference? Okay. Yeah. So in terms of harm, oof. psychedelic harms are kind of like difficult to put your finger on with like in comparison to other drugs, like, you know, alcohol is a carcinogen. We know this, this is, this is an interesting thing. And we can tell like how carcinogenic is it? At what concentrations is it? Psychedelics really, they're not carcinogens. They don't really cause any, they cause increases in blood pressure. So if you have like a severe cardiovascular condition, maybe don't take psychedelics. Ah, apart from that, I mean, so physiologically, psychedelics are pretty much totally inert. Um, there might be something where if you take mushrooms like every day, then your one of your heart valves might fibrosis a little bit more, but that's like totally theoretical and has not been shown at all in population studies. So yeah, th physiologically, we're pretty good. Psychologically, then we maybe now, now, now you can start sort of talking about some issues sort of in a, from a psychiatry perspective. There's some old reports and then a lot of hospital reports of people who have like either a history of schizophrenia or some sort of manic disorder um, who have come in and are, like have these prolonged psychoses that can last you know 24, 48 hours, maybe up to a week. And some people really feel like they're sort of traumatized for the rest of their life because they have such a crazy experience of dissociation and lack of control and a detachment from reality. So some people, so I'd say the most common adverse effect that could be applicable to anyone is that for a couple of days afterwards, if you have a really intense, really maybe traumatic, there's a lot of emotional content that comes up during the experience, you might feel detached from reality. You're not quite sure what's real and not real, which is a basic sort of form of psychosis. Uh, that might happen. It's super rare. hasn't happened to anyone in any of our studies. This is, yeah, this is something that, that could happen. And then if you have a family history or a personal history with psych psychotic disorders, then you do have really a risk of prolonged psychosis. 
and that that is worth bearing in mind. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think it's also a lot about if you don't have like the predisposition for for psychosis, but during a, a trip you can really feel that okay, yeah, like I might go mad, but then I think the interpretation that you give then, like, oh, is it because I I do feel that some people tend to like panic in those moments, like, okay, mm-hmm. I think I'm developing a psychosis and then formulate a very bad trip in their mind because they're just like worried about that. But yeah. I think if you if you attribute it as like, okay, this is part of the trip, just let yeah. it go, then it might be easier and then also maybe I mean I'm just like speculating here, but like then maybe you also don't have that averse, like longer effects later. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, like one of the, it's kind of circular, right? That one of the things that freaks people out the most while they're on psychedelics is this fear that they're going to make them, that like, oh my God, I've cooked my brain. Like, I'm just going to be insane now and I'm never ever going to be sane again. I feel like me saying this on, on a podcast is going to be like, oh my God, that could actually happen. And then they're freaking out. It's, I mean, it's extremely, extremely rare. And every, pretty much everyone at some point during the trip is like, I guess I'm insane now. <laughs> or they're like, what is normal reality like anyway? I've I've actually forgotten. Is this normal reality or was something else normal reality? This is yeah. super, super normal. Everyone goes through it who, who t- uh, takes these drugs and then comes out the other side and is like, oh, yeah, no, this is normal reality because everything makes sense and <laughs> everyone agrees what things are like. We call it consensus reality. You return yeah. to consensus reality because we all sort of agree <laughs> that things are where they are. I think it's so important that you have like a safe setting because as you also said, like most people actually have this experience that they go crazy and like the majority of them not going to go crazy. So it's... uh, Yeah, yeah. So as a researcher, like speaking from like the clinical research that we do, we have like, we take a lot of effort in screening the participants, making sure that they, again, no, no family history of these diagnoses, but we also just have like no health conditions at all. Like the people in our studies are unbelievably healthy. And then we spend a long time preparing them for the trip, like letting them know what it's going to be like and all of these different things. And then during the trip, we have a a lead sitter and an assistant sitter there the whole time. And we Mm. play a specially curated music playlist. And we have like, we have a medical doctor constantly on call, myself as a pharmacologist and then other medical students. So you're like extremely looked after in a very, you're either in a scanner or in a very comfortable room with music and stuff and like people are really just chilling like people have a tend to have a really great time a lot of people cry but like not all tears are evil right you know um so yeah that's from a research perspective we got like totally belt and braces really over the top it's it's great i think it's a really good thing to do especially within the research setting we want to make sure everything's super controlled but i guess yeah for people at home as well it's super important that people manage their set and setting and make sure that they're around people they trust and um yeah and also screen themselves right just be like should okay. is should i do this you know there's a lot of interesting experiences out there just to come back to the question is there a difference between organic and chemical psychedelics no yeah i mean like all all psychedelics are chemicals <laughs> or ultimately. it's synthetic yeah yeah uh, so yeah on, on the surface my, my like my knee-jerk instinct is to be like no they're they're, they're pretty much like they're just the same. They all they all work through the same profile. Uh, they all activate what's called the serotonin two A receptor, but they all activate that. And if you block the two A receptor with another drug and then give psychedelics, like just nothing happens. And it doesn't matter which psychedelic you give, right? That might not be strictly true. There's some psychedelics that haven't been tested there, but all evidence suggests that that would that would be the case. With that said. Of all the common psychedelics, so LSD is synthetic, 2CB is synthetic, and then psilocybin is is natural, and then DMT 
is natural as well, right? People extract it from Mimosa hostilis or they get it from like ayahuasca. Of those four, of which like two are natural and two are synthetic, no, fine, they're all exactly the same. There's some synthetic uh, psychedelics that were created by this really brilliant chemist, David Nichols, out in Purdue in America. And some of those have extremely long durations of action. So they're research chemicals. They weren't, they weren't created to be taken per se, right? They're, they're research things. So they have very long durations of action and they cause a vasoconstriction. So all psychedelics cause vasoconstriction to some extent, which is like just your blood vessels getting pulled in and getting tighter. But the, these ones cause it quite a lot. And they also last a really, really long time. And so for some for those, some people have like lost fingertips and toes and things because of the vasoconstriction. Oh, yeah. And why did they develop this, uh, this research drug? So what they were trying to do is see whether they could create drugs that were really selective for this serotonin 2A receptor. Because these previous drugs like psilocybin and LSD, they hit a lot of different receptors. They hit like histamine, dopamine, yeah, all sorts of other receptors. And uh, lots of serotonin receptors as well. So these these they're, they're called um they're called N bomb compounds. Those are very very selective for the serotonin two so two A two C uh, receptors. And so it was just like a, an exercise in medicinal chemistry to see what that would be like. And then people have also tried them and to see like whether that's a different experience or not. And again, that's not been fully characterized, but it seems to be pretty similar. Yeah. And going back to the experience part, because you said that maybe like this enhanced connectivity or like talk between the different brain areas might only indicate that the participants are more awake. And then mm. I would assume like, yeah, maybe if they take caffeine or something, it show, would show a similar connectivity. But then a mechanism that explains the experience part is still not discovered or am I getting it uh, that right? Yeah, I, I guess I should backtrack a little bit on... Um the on the different mechanisms so mm -hmm. <clears throat> one of them the, the most simple and sort of hands-off if, you, if you're a real cynic in the space then you'll just say that there's this network flattening effect and that that's like the only really robust thing there's three other sort of hypotheses in the space that get tested quite a lot mm -hmm. and each of these has a little bit more sort of psychological potential explanatory value insofar as we can infer changes in mind from changes in brain which is a bit of a sticky topic, mm -hmm. right? So, so one of them is this, it's called the thalamic gating hypothesis. And the idea is that so you, the thalamus is this center, this uh, structure in the center of your brain that filters sensory information. So we don't process all of the sensory information that we take in all the time. Like you're probably not aware that you like the, of the feeling of your socks some of the time, but then now I've mentioned it, everyone's aware of the feeling of their socks, <laughs> right? But so that, that sensory information gets filtered out at some point. And that, that part of your brain is called the thalamus. And there was this idea from the olden days that the thalamus is like this reducing valve and that when you take psychedelics, it sort of loosens the reducing valve and like all the sensory information just comes like flooding all the way through from your sensory cortex into your associative cortex, which is just like the bits of your brain, which might be responsible for like your, your awareness, right? Or like the integration of all of your sensory, uh, of your sensory data. So there's this idea that psychedelics decrease the thalamic gating, and that explains the effects in some ways, because now we're getting like, you really, like, really, really, really pay attention, right, on psychedelics. You might look at like a raspberry and just be like, wow, I've never seen really what a raspberry looks like until now. Or you listen to music, and you're like, wow, I can hear every single instrument and where they are, and where they're sitting, and like, how much facial hair the flutist has. And it's like, you become like, really, really attentive to detail. And that might be because this thalamic filtering of sensory information is going down. 
So that's one of the hypotheses. The other big one is called the entropic brain hypothesis. It's proposed by this, this professor, Robin Carhart-Harris, who recently moved to California to do new research. And this is the idea that the richness of the subjective experience is like a is related to the entropy of your brain activity. And so this is a big project that I've been working on for the last year and a bit, looking at what he actually what will we actually mean by entropy in the brain. And there's a lot of different ways of characterizing it, and it's very mathematical, and I, I, I'm not going to go into it here. But the idea is that <clears throat> if you have more entropic brain activity or more entropic brain connectivity, then that is responsible for the, the psychedelic state, which you could also consider as being entropic. There's this guy, Aiden, who works here. I've forgotten his surname. But he, he's working now a little bit on trying to bridge that gap. Is the mind more entropic uh, while on psychedelics? And then I'm sort of working on, is the brain more entropic? And then we're, we're going to talk at some point and try, and try and reconcile our findings insofar as that might be possible or not. Is it possible that both the reduced telematic gating and the brain entropy hypothesis is true? Yeah, it could be yeah. the case. Could totally be the case. I mean, these both have like the reason these these hypotheses got off the ground is because they're intuitive, and people mm -hmm. sort of listen to people who don't even know how like fMRI works at all, or can sort of listen to it and be like, yeah, that nah, yeah, that sounds like it makes sense. Like, unfortunately, that's not always how things work, right? Like, turns out time gets slower as you get faster to the speed of light. That's not intuitive, <laughs> and that seems to be like undeniably the case. So. I, I tend to be very cynical of things, especially, especially if they're very intuitive. Especially if you listen to it and you're like, yeah, that makes total sense. Then I'm always just like, hmm, maybe not. No. <laughs> But that's just because I'm a bit of a, a cynical asshole. <laughs> and is there any hypothesis or explanation why some people uh, experience totally different subjective experiences by taking the same uh, substances? Like some people have very religious experience, or mm. but others have self-transcendent or like mythical Is there any research on why these experiences are so different or does it depend on the person or or different regions get uh, involved in the, yes. in the activation? So I believe, and I might be wrong here, I might be out of date a little bit, but the, the only study that I'm really aware of that looks at something to do with like baseline characteristics of a person and then sees how they respond differently is that people who are very high in what's called the intelligent absorption scale have more intense experiences. So th these are people who get very easily absorbed mm, okay. in things and really like immerse and probably enter flow states more easily. Those people tend to have more intense experiences. And we've shown with a little bit of preliminary data that if you've taken psychedelics before, then your psych your experiences in our lab are typically less intense than people whose first experience it is. So maybe the number of psychedelic experiences you've had also has a, a substantial impact on what your experience is going to be like Or you have some prediction that uh, what's going to happen and then you're like, yeah, you're not experiencing yeah. it as intense as... Yeah, yeah like if, if, if you've been outside of time and space and have no sense of self before and then you're there again, you're just like, oh yeah, I know what this is like. It's probably still crazy, but you're like... Okay. I've been here before, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah cool, I don't exist, fine. Like, tell me what's, what's up next. So I, again, I, <laughs> I really wish I could uh, give you some sort of answer. Like, yeah, people with blue eyes tend to have these kind of experiences. <laughs> but like, like, it's just, yeah, we're working on that, though. We have a new study coming up where we're going to be giving either 60 or 90 people high doses of psychedelics and then 30 people, 30 people quite a low dose. And we're going to measure absolutely everything we can think of. So we're using neuroimaging with a, a variety of different tasks. Then we're doing cognitive testing. So ob objective cognitive testing, but then personality testing, a lot of questionnaires, who people are, 
what they're like. Then we're doing genetic testing. We're doing a bunch of physiological measures. And then we're just going to see using that cohort whether we can predict, using the, all that data, whether we can predict who's going to have these mystical experiences, who's going to have the like visual experiences, uh, that sort of thing. Mm, wow. And uh, other sites have collected a lot of data like this before. But for some reason, either people have just like looked and seen whether they can predict acute experiences and just been like, nope, turns out we can't. And then that never gets published, right? Because uh-huh. journals only publish re- like finding findings. Okay. But on the activity level, um, there shouldn't be any difference. I don't know. Yeah, people have all sorts of very different experiences, but I think largely they're more similar than they are dissimilar. We're at the step now of trying to work out what is the psychedelic experience generally. Then we're not really at the step of working out, okay, now within the psychedelic experience, there are maybe two to four. We've done some clustering analyses. Maybe there's like four different types of experience that people have. Then, yeah, we're, we're just super not there. Like we just don't have nearly enough data. When you try and have like a high resolution look at something like that, you're like, yeah, good luck, unless you have hundreds of people in your study. Just because psychology is really noisy. We don't have defined data points very much, so people report things super differently. And so, yeah, trying to work out a neural correlate of that is always going to be really, really challenging. I feel like such a wet towel. I feel like every time, every every question you guys have asked me, I'm like, nah, no, not really. No, but I mean, that's the reality of it. It's not like blue-eyed people is going to have this experience every time. Yeah, it's not like that. Yeah, so, yeah, that's of course. not how it's going to be. But like, I, I do think that in the next 10 years or so, we're going to really, we're going to uncover some interesting trends. With more and more research that's being published, can we expect any developed developments in terms of how society thinks of psychedelics and with treatment are there going to be like what kind of treatments can we expect for example in the next 10 years okay that's a good question so first on the society thing and then and then on the medicalization thing so on the society side we've already seen a big uptick in just public use of psychedelics and uh, i'm not a generally not a fan of drug laws i think drug laws do more harm than the drugs do in many cases, currently very angry. So I'm half Singaporean, and I don't know if you saw in the news that Singapore like killing a man for moving some cannabis through the country with like a rope around his neck. Uh, and they oh killed 11 God. people last year for drug charges, including one guy who was like mentally disabled, who had three teaspoons of heroin taped to his inner thigh. Like Singapore oh is an atrocious... Atro- yeah. So when I think about like Danish and British and Dutch drug laws and I get mad, like, oh, they're banning 6-APB in, in the Netherlands. I also think like, yeah, but you die in Singapore if you have a tab of acid with you. So yeah, yeah globally, I really hope that like the shifts in the West cause some shifts in the East. Uh, but that's, that's kind of a, a personal battle. But then we are also seeing, uh, like I say, a massive increase in... I say a massive... We're seeing an increase in, uh, in drug use in the Western world. And then in America, in like Oregon, they've sort of they've decriminalized decriminalized nature is what they called it, which I think is a really smart uh, name for the movement. But they've decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms, and they have these like state warranted therapy treatment centers where people can be trained to be sitters and be in them. Yeah, they're really trying to work it out as it goes, and power to them. I, I hope it works out. But we're probably going to see more people going into hospital with this sort of stuff. But then hopefully we see fewer people going into hospital with like alcohol related injuries and smoking related stuff hopefully people like feel better can sort out their traumas and stuff with some care from their friends and things uh so i i do hope as a society there's something there i I have this sort of i mean this is very tongue-in-cheek sort of joke where you know psychedelics make you generally make people not fans of violence right i mean the unabomber was a big psychedelics guy and then he was a big fan of violence but generally people have this experience where they're like why do we all hurt each other when we're all the same 
you know? And I, I slightly worry that, like, the Western world is all going to do a bunch of psychedelics and just get really chill. And then, like, Russia <laughs> and China are going to be like, ha-ha. <laughs> Here is our time, <laughs> you, guys, yeah. you guys got rid of all your nukes, huh? <laughs> uh, no. no, I'm just yeah. joking. I, 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 no. I, I am just joking, but that's, uh, that's a... a <laughs> but I also find it so funny when uh, back in the 70s or 60s, like, they tried also in the army when they didn't know what LSD is for mm. to give uh, the army LSD, see if it's, like... I think they thought it like, can be like a mind controlling drug or yeah, something. Yeah, MK Ultra. And then, yeah. then all these soldiers were like tripping and like looking at trees and stuff. Like yeah, that. Have you seen that, like, that video from the British Museum? Yeah, that like, was like, this is cool. Climbed yeah. a tree. Yeah. <laughs> that could be actually a nice approach. Just give all the soldiers that is there and then just yeah. Yeah, don't so hurt each other. <laughs> it's a project that I heard about many years ago and I hope it's, I, I hope it's still running. There's this guy, Leor Roseman, for, who works in Imperial, who also works in, um, in Israel. And um, he's planning to give MDMA to Palestinians and Israelis in the same room and see if they can sort of duke it out a little bit and just, like, realize that they all really love each other, really. Oh, my God. And, yeah. like, that's a crazy ambitious project, right? You want to talk about That's a very ballsy project. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's actually, they're actually planning it for real. Well, I heard about this in, like, 2020, and I haven't heard anything since. But there's a big psychedelics conference in Tel Aviv in December where maybe we can hear more about it. Maybe we'll see the results of that. I, I, I don't know what's going on. Maps are sponsoring it. This guy, Rick Doblin, who's the, uh, I think he's the CEO. Either way, he's the, he's the Maps guy. He runs Maps. Total legend. Massive fan of Rick. He, he, he said, yeah, we're going to do this with Israelis and Palestine, Palestinians. We're going to see if it works. And then if it does, we'll do the harder problem of Republicans and Democrats in America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Imagine, yeah. So you want to talk about, like, the effects of psychedelics on society. That seems to be, like, maps of this interesting idea of where they're going to get people in conflict and then get them to take MDMA together and then see whether that makes them more chill with each other. I think it's cool. I'd love to see it. I think, <laughs> yeah, if you hate someone... Do MDMA with them and see how that works. Yeah. No, but I think it's really interesting. And I think there's just so much still to discover about psychedelic research. And I'm really looking forward, yeah, like what they, what they do and what kind of findings we're going to have in the next five, ten it's, years. It's accelerating yeah. at a really crazy rate now. If, I mean, if you look on clinicaltrials.gov and just type in like psychedelic, you can see there's hundreds of studies now that are reg registered there to be done in, in such a wide range of conditions that's really, really encouraging. Like I used to be very uh, invested in uh, anorexia nervosa as a as a as a disorder. It is the most fatal of the psychiatric conditions, and it's like massive decrease in quality of, of life for the individuals. They are just suffering all of the time, and there's no treatments at all. Like the only treatment really is to gain weight, and of course they should gain weight. Uh, everyone knows this except them, but. There are several trials now using uh, psilocybin for the treatment of, of anorexia nervosa. There's Again, there's a sort of intuitive metric to it where it's like anorexia is less of like a, it's not like a psychiatric condition where you like lose a cognitive function like anhedonia or something. It's like a value shift. It's like, would I like to be happy and fulfilled or would I like to be skinny? And they choose skinny every time over. It's not that they think it'll make them happy. It's that they change the value system. This is what I've heard from some clinicians there. I'm not an expert in the field, but it's something that I'm sort of emotionally invested in as well. And I think that's a really interesting indication. And I see a lot of potential for it. The issue will be getting patients through the door to actually sign up to get treated. Like everyone with depression wants to not have depression anymore. But a lot of people with anorexia actually don't not want to not have anorexia. So that's a big issue. Um, but you sort of you asked about where the medicalization could go in the future. Uh, we've seen some really nice clinical trials with uh, with depression starting to come out with anxiety, the substance use disorder, 
uh, stuff is the most encouraging, really. Yeah. The smoking cessation, alcoholism, that stuff is looking great. But I am also really interested by these other disorders that currently have no treatments. Yeah. Um, like end-of-life distress is looking really hot as well. I mean, that, that was like the first one. But then, yeah, anorexia. People are going into bipolar uh, now as well. I had a talk yesterday with someone who wants to run an obesity trial. It's it's interesting. I think in Australia they've already legalized some psychedelics to treat depression, right, recently. I yeah. Think as a last resort, if nothing else helps, then... I, I totally think that makes sense. I think yeah. that's a, like a good place to start. Is there the, any, any, any other place? Well, there's this thing in Oregon you can do, but no, nowhere else. So none of the drug regulatory bodies, so the FDA and... Oh, that's a total lie, Switzerland. Yeah, so in Switzerland, they have the Compassionate Use Program where you're allowed to use LSD uh, to treat various psychiatric conditions. Mm -hmm. And they've done like 700 or something, like loads and loads of sessions. And it's funny because we, we you go to these like medicalization conferences and there's the Americans being like, we just have no idea how this is ever going to be implemented in the clinic. How's it going to work? Like, do we have centers? How does the, do we have trip sitters? Like, how does the whole thing work? And the Swiss are always just sitting there like, we've been doing this for 10 years. Here's, an, here's a guy that does psychedelic sessions every week. <laughs> you know, yeah. like Felix Müller is like just doing sessions, like treating people with LSD, treating their depression, anxiety, all these things. So it, it's, it's already happening in Switzerland. So it, it's funny when you hear people be like, we just don't know how this could ever be implemented in the clinic. Like, just look at Switzerland. And in the future, it'll be just look at Australia. So Australia, I think they also approved is MDMA and psilocybin. I think definitely MDMA. Definitely MDMA. Yeah, because yeah, MDMA is really the furthest along. So MAPS have published two phase three trials, which are those pivotal last trials uh, that you need before approval from the from the drug administration agencies. Mm. But no, they, they haven't been approved by either the Federal Drug Administration in America or the European Medical Association in, in Europe. And those are the two big bodies that we sort of that we in the Western world right deal with with regard to getting a medicine from being a candidate treatment to being an actualized treatment. But we did. We had a conference in Nice a couple months ago, maybe two months ago, where the FDA were there, the EMA were there, and then a bunch of clinicians were there. Just a lot of doctors, psychiatrists, neurologists that are interested in the space. And it was very different from a, a lot of other, a lot of psychedelics conferences. We talk about psychedelics in culture. We talk about trying to work out the mechanisms and these sort of other really interesting academic scientific questions. But this conference was purely focused on, all right, what do we need to know to get these into the clinic? And how are we going to get it into the clinic in the best possible way? And with the FDA and the EMA were there, it's like, we need this sort of data, we need this sort of data. If you want help, come to us. We are willing. They have departments now at each of these bodies. They have people who are specifically allocated to this sort of stuff. And then not only that, but there was also members of what's called the the HTAs. They're like the payer bodies in, in Europe. So you can get a drug approved by the EMA where they say, yeah, it's safe and it, it works. But you have to then go through the next layer, which is will the taxpayer pay for this? Because we have public health care, right, in the EU. And so someone makes a decision of like, okay, psilocybin therapy costs 20,000 euros, say, and SSRIs cost 50 euros a year. Is it worth that difference to give someone psilocybin therapy instead of SSRIs? Right. And so someone somewhere was going to make that decision. I mean, ultimately, depression, the cost of depression on like the economics of the Western world are colossal. Enormous, yeah. Right. Like, you're, I mean, if especially if people kill themselves, right, then they're, they're just like, that's a huge, huge, uh, obviously a massive personal tragedy, but also economically uh, a tragedy. Yeah, that sounds really heartless. But <laughs> either way, I'm just saying that the maths adds up. It, yeah. And it really, even if psilocybin therapy is like $50,000, 
it might still actually make sense. And especially because that those costs are going to go down as time goes on, because we sort of work out what's important, work out what's not important. And this was a big message uh, from this conference in Nice as well, that we're going to have to try and optimize that. But any new treatment is welcome in the space because you do have a lot of people going through like the three to five steps of SSRI, CBT, even ECT, like electroconvulsive, transcranial magnetic stimulation, going through all those treatments, not really recovering. And then some of those patients have been shown to recover following psychedelics. So especially for those people who've really tried all the cheaper solutions, first, psychedelics do really propose uh, pose a, um, an interesting new new solution that could be both cost-effective and safe. So thank you, Drummond, thank again, you. for joining yeah, us. It was okay. really, really nice. I think one takeaway message for me is that there are just so many potentials in this, and we still don't know a lot of things, but for like treatment potential and patient care that can benefit society. And I'm very, very looking forward to see yeah, where, it, where it all goes in the yeah, next years. Too. So. Yeah,